Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Yes, welcome Let's... to the Event Horizon. I'm Gene Turnbow, your host, and my co-host is Susan Fox, our executive producer. Howdy! And with us today is Madeline Holly Rosing, the author of the steampunk adventure series, Boston Metaphysical Society. Welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you very much for having me again. You know <laughs> how we always say to guests on their way out... Oh, when you have something new to talk about, call us anytime. Well, she did, so we did. Here we are. And it's always fun talking to you because you always have you always have new interesting things going on. So I do try to stay on top of things. Well, let's let's for for the new listeners, let's let's backtrack and uh, explain Boston Metaphysical Society. It's a six-issue supernatural steampunk uh, miniseries. It's a comic. And it's about an ex-Pinkerton detective and his spirit photographer partner who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. It's a good place for it. Yes. A lot uh, of history in Boston. Even that's then. Why, that's why I chose it, uh, because it's steeped in American history. So where did that idea come from? Was, were there real ghosts that, that inspired this, you know, this spinning out this tale? No, it was, it was a combination of a lot of things I had been doing when I was at UCLA Film School. I was taking a TV development class, and we had to write a TV pilot. And I love genre TV shows and books and films and everything. And I love X-Files, and I love history. So I originally came up with a Boston Metaphysical as a period piece supernatural detective show. Uh, sort of, you know, cross between X-Files and late 1800s Boston. And it wasn't until a friend of mine suggested, why don't you set this in a, a steampunk universe? And I, that I, I redeveloped it into what you see today. I really hadn't followed steampunk at all up until that time. So I had to do uh, reading and research. And then when I saw what it was, I knew it fit perfectly and it ended up being a perfect marriage of my love of science fiction and history. And so it all kind of worked out. So I, I, I accidentally fell into the genre that was tailor-made for me. Great. Well, we see historical figures throughout the, the narrative, from, you know, Tesla and Edison to um, less, less famous people. Can you tell us right. about those? Uh, yes. There, well, there is a secret 
or not so secret organization at this point. Uh, they referred to themselves as Beth, Bell, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini. And they were brought together. Normally, of course, these guys wouldn't even be in the same room with each other if they could help it. But in my fictional world, I decided that I was going to have an outside force that's called the Shifter that brought them together because they had to figure out a way to stop it, to stop what it was doing. Well, even in your storyline, uh, Houdini isn't particularly enamored of any of the other fellows. No. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he thinks they're, they're a waste of skin or a waste of time or something. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, well, Houdini brings, even though he's not a scientist like the rest of them are, he brings the, the human component to, to the team. Um, sort of a more creative, humane outlook on things. And he helps bring Samuel in, one of the main characters, into Beth. And, I mean, he just sees things differently than everyone else does, which is, which is why he's there. He just has a different point of view. Now, does at, at he also any... had some connection with the uh, the supernatural, you know? Correct. <laughs> Correct. He also had the connection with with the supernatural, and then of course I, I brought in also Granville Woods, who is an African American scientist who actually did live during that time period, and he knew Edison. He he knew all these guys, uh, at least knew of them. Uh, he actually did sue. Edison twice for stealing uh, some of his patents, and he won, which is extraordinary for uh, an African-American gentleman of, of that time period. And Edison's response after losing twice was to offer him a job, but... Uh, <laughs> that's, like, that's does sound like Edison. It's like, it sounds well, like something he would do. steal from him, maybe I can buy him kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, that didn't work either, and, and Granville went and and started his, he started his own company and, and moved on with his life. Now, what did, what is, what was Granville best known for? What kind of technical work? He did uh, switching uh, technology for railroads. Mainly he uh, patented and invented a device uh, called the, I just did a, it's here somewhere. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this really long name. Um, Essentially, it's a device that allows moving trains to talk to stations and other trains at the same time so that everyone knew where everyone was, which, of course, if you're a train on a track, that's an important thing to know. Uh, this wouldn't be the rail telegraph, would it? Uh, well, he did do a rail, one type of rail telegraph that he called the telegraphy, which he sold to Bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was where you could send a, essentially a, a voice message over the wire uh, from um, you know, station to station. Uh, but this other thing was no, it's, it's quite different. That you could you could send a message from an actually moving train, uh, which is pretty extraordinary, you know, for that time. That's yeah. For, yeah I, I think I remember reading about this. It used the the rails itself as the conducting wire. Yeah, I think well, that makes a certain sort of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just using using something that's already there to make to uh, to add to the machine to make your invention work, which is really kind of the spirit of steampunk in the first place. Yes, it's, uh, you yes. know, it's all about what the steampunk is perceivable technology. It's uh, it's 
steampunk, I think, is where technology could still be understood by the clever observer. Correct. And you wouldn't need a PhD. So, yeah, no, it's that's that's quite true. So tell uh, it, and tell us about the new characters who may not have lived, but possibly should have. <laughs> well, the the main characters in my story are Samuel Hunter and Caitlin O'Sullivan. And Samuel Hunter is essentially a, a, a middle class man who married up considerably up. Uh, but unfortunately, his wife had died uh, at the hands of this entity called the Shifter. Mm. So his main goal in life is to track that thing down and kill it. Um, his other partner is Caitlin O'Sullivan, who is the spirit photographer and a medium. And she took over from her father, who used to be Samuel's partner. And then there's Granville. Yeah, it's not much of a spoiler to say that uh, Caitlin's father dies in act one correct yeah he, he dies in the first three pages <laughs> yeah we don't get to see much of him yeah, shoot the sheriff yeah. in the first reel that's what i took away from film school right <laughs> um fortunately i get to write more about andrew in the in the short stories and novellas so i get to flesh his character out in in other avenues you must uh you must spend a great deal of time doing uh uh, backstories, not only for your characters, but for the, the world that you're working in. Yeah, it, it does take a lot of just thinking <laughs> about mm -hmm. where things are going, where they came from. Uh, I think like I may have mentioned to you before, uh, the what what we know as a civil war in my world, it's I've reimagined it as more like I, I refer to it as the house wars and it's these great houses that are very wealthy families that are essentially corporations unto themselves so you have the northern houses and the southern houses that go to war with each other during the house wars and the comic begins about you know roughly 35 years after the fact uh, mm -hmm. after that's mm -hmm. over so you'll see actually in the comic and definitely in, in the short stories and the novellas uh, little bits about the house wars. If you look in the first issue of the comic, there is a page where Samuel goes to visit a couple of pages, his a former, uh, former ex-father-in-law, Jonathan Wellsmore. And when he enters the room, you see a door that has huge gears and stuff on it. And that's essentially, he's coming into a safe room within a house. And that was built during the house wars. Oh, um, so, wow. so everything has a purpose. So this is, this is, this is pretty well nuanced then. That, this um, is sounding more neat by the minute. Uh, I try, <laughs> <laughs> but the, but what's been fun is the short stories and novellas have really allowed me to develop the world much give a much more depth and nuance and also add little things to to the comic as well as i continue to write it would you say that caitlin is the star of your story um yeah i guess so well, uh, i don't know i think there's i think it's the two of them you know it's like scully and Mulder, mully and scully 
Skulder and well, Skulder and well, <laughs> Skulder and Mold Spices. Well, it's... yeah. Well, well, you know, you know, the tagline of the comic is before Mulder and Scully, there was Hunter and O'Sullivan. Uh-huh. Ah, there we go. And so it's really the two of them, you know, at the center the, of everything, moving everything they, forward. They are the center of everything. Though Granville, I, I don't short shift him. He he's definitely part of it, and we see more of him in in the next issue and and the fourth issue. Uh, and we see more of, we learn more about Samuel's background and what's been haunting him. Uh, Cause there's much more to him than, than people know at this point. Uh, and so we'll reveal more of that in, in the fourth issue, which Emmy is working on right now, by the way. And I should have some, some new pages next week. Of e- Emmy is your, Emmy is your artist. What's her, yes, what's her Emily, full name again? Emily Hugh is my artist. Emily Hugh. She is, uh, I love her work. She, it's, it's vibrant and fresh and alive. It's a little, you know, it's maybe a little rough, uh, in, in terms of the, the, uh, the inking she does, but, uh, it has a vibrance that makes up for it. it it's, it's just, every line has motion in it. And, yeah, uh, I, it's just would... so easy on the eyes and so, so appropriate to the storytelling. I was very lucky to to find Emmy, who I met through a mutual friend. She's she's just awesome, and she's very enthusiastic about the comic too. And 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 you have to have that with your artist. You you both have to be enthusiastic about your story and really care about it. And what's really fun is that you know a couple of years ago when we first started, I had sent her the whole proposal, so she knew what the whole story was, but. Of course, she hasn't gone back to it, and now she's getting each, each issue, and she's forgotten what's happened. So it's kind of fun because she's like almost reading it for the, the first time. <laughs> it's like each issue, she's going like, "Oh my god, what <laughs> <laughs> <This has> happened?" <laughs> it's really, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, she's she's terrific, and I think she's also very young. So you're seeing, you know, the the young Emmy and. And 10 years from now, you're just, I think she's going to blow your doors off. She's, We're all going to be gonna proud be of ourselves for having having known her early work, right? We know oh. where and when. Oh, yeah. So um, you've got a Kickstarter going. And, yes. you know, at the risk of this becoming the crowdfunding, you know, power hour, you have yeah. two uh, Kickstarters. One didn't go so well. This one, you've already reached... Uh, a stretch goal or two. What have you done right this time? Um, well, I brought down the amount. Uh, we In the first Kickstarter, we were looking to fund the entire rest of the comic uh, and the art production. Yikes. That's, yeah. that's a lot. And it's a lot of money. I mean, it, it, that's just that's what it is. It, it takes a lot of money to produce a comic, and I think a lot of people don't understand that, other than other comic creators. And unless you're able to write and draw yourself, which I can't do. I mean, I'm good with stick figures, but that's about it. Well, and even if, if even if you can, it's rarely a good idea to do that because uh, you're one person. You can't possibly produce enough fast enough to uh, hit reasonable publication deadlines. So well, you know, I, even, I even if you can do it, it's, it's not a, a good idea. A quality issue too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I know there are there are some um, artists writers who do a very good job at it, and, and more few. power. Yeah, more power to them that they can mm-hmm. do. That. 
I, I unfortunately cannot. So I have to hire, hire my help, uh, which is why I have such as this team um, of Emmy and the two colorists and my letterer and mm -hmm. I have a writing group. So, you know, things get vetted and talked about and rewritten. So nothing operates in a vacuum here at all. So you're, this is, this is your first uh, venture into, into the comics medium. Correct. You've this never my... done this before. No. And it, is... it's coming out so well for something that you've never done before. I'm just, I'm, I'm constantly enthused by the quality that I see in it. So what other, what previous comics, what comics do you read? What comics inspire you, inspired you to go ahead with this? Um, I really liked, uh, like freak angels, uh, which is completed. I love that. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. Warren uh, Ellis, right? Yes, yes. Warren Ellis, um, Derelict, mm -hmm. which they just finished a very successful Kickstarter. Oh, good. That's an interesting story. Uh, there's also Fox Sister, uh, done by Christina Strain. She's written that. Uh, the artist, I think she just goes by Emily or Emmy. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I was fortunate enough that Christina actually was a classmate of mine in my very first sequential art class. Mm -hmm. And she used to be a colorist with Marvel for seven years. So her industry knowledge is huge. And she was essentially one of my mentors and became a good friend. And so I've been surrounded by people who know what they're doing. So I've been very, very fortunate in that respect. So I've, I've learned a lot from them. I noticed that that uh, none of the titles that you've named are really mainstream titles. They're all indie. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it com I, comic books are, are more than just uh, men, men and women in tights or not in tights, depending on yeah. who's drawing them. Yeah, my brother was is, is still a huge comic fan. He, he probably superheroes. I didn't even know there was anything but superheroes until much later in life, superhero comics. And I can blame my brother on that, who probably has the largest graded Daredevil collection on the face of the planet. Mm. It's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just, I had no interest in the superheroes. And, superheroes. And when I was finally introduced to indie comics, and there's, you know, there's also like Astro City and Why the Last Man and and a bunch of others, I I just thought to myself, why did not anyone tell me this before? This this is amazing. These are great stories that it's like the world is is hiding from mainstream America. And what's really nice is I think indie comics now is breaking free of that. Would success spoil them? I don't know. Um, I don't know. That's hard to say. I tend to think not, just because indie creators are kind of different. <laughs> we're, we're kind of an unusual bunch, I think. So your initial your initial training really is in uh, writing for television. Correct. Uh, that's yes. that's really cool. <laughs> uh, television and and features at uh, UCLA. Uh, film school, the, mm -hmm. the MFA program. Yeah, I, I went to UCLA as, UCLA as well, although I went through the bachelor's degree program right before they killed it. Uh, and I failed to get in that program, so I went somewhere else. But that's neither here nor there. You do, your training was in 
you know, sequential art is not just drawn, it's, it's filmed as well, isn't it? So there's yeah, a lot I of the same storytelling happening and a lot absolutely. of different presentation. Um, absolutely. The, I think screenwriters make good comic book writers. And that's because we think visually mm-hmm. and you have to write visually. The main difference is that in comics, you get to direct your characters. And in features, you don't. Unless, of course, you're the one who's actually directing the film, then you can do whatever you want. But, uh, you know, obviously, you you went to films, you both do, you know that writing directions in a a film script to be read is a huge no-no. But in comics... Yeah. But in comics, you have to in order for your artist to know what you want. You know, otherwise... That's interesting. You're, but you're, I, I hadn't thought about that before, but you're yeah, obviously the comic right. The book writer is, is the director. And, yeah. and it, the, um, the artist, maybe the cinematographer, but mm-hmm. is not the director. Right. And in, in film school, the, when you were in uh, screenwriting classes one of the things they tried to hammer through your skull was do not direct from the script. Don't do this. That's the director's job. He will not like this. It makes yeah, your script just, unusable. Yeah, it'll it'll just annoy people and mm-hmm. usually won't get past the reader if if you do that. But how much you direct in a comic script is up to your personal style and also the relationship with your artist. Because uh, different artists have different strengths, just like writers do. And I, I have a friend of mine who, I mean, he really directs every single panel, except for every once in a while, he'll just go like, oh, do what you want here, <laughs> to his artist. Great. Um, and I try to give just the, the basics so I can allow Emmy to be an artist to put her creativity into it. And sometimes we'll have to change it. Every once in a while, I'll look at something and say, no, we we really can't take this as a high angle shot. I want to see the faces and things like that. But I do want, I I want her to be an artist. I want her to put herself into it. So I don't want to micromanage her. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yet I still need certain things to happen in order for the audience to respond, for character development, for story development, and things like that. So, but, so she gives you thumbnails before she does completed panels, or? Uh, at this point, since we're on issue four, she pretty much does the thumbnails herself, and then she just goes, and then she gives me three pages at a time that I will edit, and then return to her while she's working on the next three pages. She must be very fast. She can be, yeah. She can be. If if it's not a heavy con season or if we're not in the middle of the con season, mm-hmm. uh, she can she can crank it out. So um, the fact that you are a screenwriter, I mean, what is it? And this is something that's been bothering me for a long time, and it's probably something that a lot of our audience has been wondering about, too. What do comic book scripts actually look like? Is it like a, a, a TV script or a movie script? With extra exposition, or what's it like? Um, it it can be, depending on the writer. I have another friend of mine who just simply writes it like he he's a screenwriter himself, and he just simply writes it like a a script. 
Uh, I was taught a little more traditionally. So I do panel it out and have formatting a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, you, Your well, visual the, storytelling. Yeah, the training. visual storytelling. The one thing you, you can do in a comic, a comic script that you would never, ever see in a, in a screenplay is you can put links to pictures for your artists. You can put notes to your artists and your colorists. In fact, you should. <laughs> if, <laughs> uh -huh. if there's something specific, uh, like in the second issue, I needed uh, the fluid in a beaker to be green. And so I said, you know, I left, you know, no two colorists, the color in the, the fluid in the beaker is going to be green. And so they gave me green and there was a reason for that. Um, and so I, I tend to let every give people a lot of freedom. But if I need something to be a certain color or need to look a certain way, or if I think Emily is not familiar with what something should look like, I'll go find a picture online and I'll send her the JPEG or the link and I'll say, mm -hmm. okay, I need it to look something like this. So you Whatever. do some of the reference photo research for them so oh, that they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, if, a picture, a picture, as they say, is worth a thousand words, and it had better be because it takes up a hell of a lot more disk space. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, how much more uh, Boston Metaphysical Society, or can we expect? You've got a what a six issue sequence. Yeah, it's a six issue sequence. Uh, my main goal now is just to complete that and to get it into a trade. And at that point, I hope that we can pick, pick up a regular publisher. Uh, Cause I just, it's, I have a staff that is me and that's it. Yeah, I could get tiring. Yeah, so we do need to bring, you know, other people on board to, to help either with publishing and, and some other aspects of the business. Come but, to uh, think of it, we know somebody at IDW. That's true. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should, we, you know, we should get to the right. Yeah, we should introduce you to and, and, and at least see if you can, you know, have a conversation. Conversations are good. Yeah, especially when it's uh, potentially lucrative. IDW is, is, uh, is just going bonsai. They're, they're doing great with their own. They're running their own titles now, their own intellectual property. Some are sci-fi and some are superhero superheroes and, and some are like none of the above. And, you know, and there's no reason why you couldn't fit right in. IDW runs Dr. Hooves. They have the <laughs> and the, the My Little Pony Dr. Who crossover comic that started out as a joke. And then it got developed as a property. And then the BBC said, ah, OK. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they kind of had to, you know. It's a it was, it was going to go anyway, yeah, with or without them. So they might as well, you know, might as well get out in front of the train and pretend they're pulling it. <laughs> yeah, it's not right. They don't want it to get away from them if they want to have some sort of at least modicum of creative control. Then, yeah, they need to. Well, and it's it, it's it's the most bizarre cross licensing thing I can imagine. You know the BBC and Hasbro. <laughs> yeah, Hasbro have must toy. have signed off; had to have signed off on it too. Yeah, I suppose they would have. They had to. Again, yeah, it's a parody, to. unless it's in the cartoon. It's... Yeah, illegally. You know, I mean, it, it's they—they they could have. 
if they decided they didn't want to cooperate, they could sue them into oblivion. Yeah, they could have stopped it. They could have stopped it. But apparently they didn't, which implies that they have some kind of consent or agreement with them. But anyway, well, I, yeah. need, that's what we need. Busted metaphysical action figures. <laughs> yeah, IDW, I think, is based out of San Diego, is it? Uh, Los know. Angeles. Jason. Yeah, I, yeah, Jason Enright is our, is the fellow here. We interviewed him on the Event Horizon, I think, uh, three months ago. I know Jason. Oh, you know Jason. Well, go I talk to Jason. Go he's talk great, to him. He's yeah. a great guy. He really is. Yeah, go talk to him. <laughs> he's the guy. <laughs> We all be at Comic Con together. Yeah, I I reviewed uh, the first issue of Indestructible, which is the Darby Pop imprint mm-hmm. from IDW. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is fun. It's it's right up my alley with the uh, taking a more satirical look on superheroes. Yeah, definitely. It's like people are so ready to believe the impossible. But, yeah, no, it's it's good. It's good. They got a good thing going there. Yeah, they do. But speaking of merchandising, have you seen the um, the owl lapel pins on the Kickstarter? Yes, yes. In fact, I I contributed to the Kickstarter, and I'm I'm getting one. You're getting one? I'm getting me one. Yeah, so well, we're looking forward to pins. Superb Owl Sunday. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, for contributing. Uh, as you probably saw, we made our initial goal under 48 hours of launching, which is, which is great and frightening at the same time. Yeah, I was, I was stunned. I mean, I was confident that we would make our goal because we planned, I mean, we did a lot of planning and and Mm -hmm. thought this was very doable. Yeah. You mind your, uh, your mailing lists and, and made everybody aware that you were, restarting it and got them all lined up again in advance and yes and you threw the switch and shazam in two days you reached your goal i mean i can't thank them enough because it it just helped my stress levels so much <laughs> oh god yeah really i remember like, what we, we saw you at uh kamikaze and you were you were stressing you were not a happy lady <laughs> i was actually very ill oh, oh. Yeah, I'm sorry. yeah i was actually very sick and my husband almost took me to the hospital after kamikaze. Oh my god. I was I did not I did not know that. Yeah, I was very ill. Uh and so I just barely made it through kamikaze uh just cuz you know, y- you need to do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. But uh you know, we got the good mailing list and learned a lot and got a lot of good publicity. So the stage was set and we didn't wait too long to relaunch. You know, about three weeks after Christmas, a month or, you know, three weeks to a month, people recovered from Christmas. And, you know, we weren't forgotten by that yeah, time. And they had mm-hmm. a few paychecks since the gift paychecks, giving. Yeah. you know. <laughs> get it. That yeah, always helps. With having a much lower goal rate, you know, one dollar goes a long way. <laughs> you oh, know, one dollar, yeah. five dollars, it's just is awesome and well and people don't realize you know they they uh, these campaigns make statements like every dollar helps and people say oh no they don't need my dollar but if everybody who thought that actually contributed the dollar people would sail through their first goal in the blink of an eye because i think you're right because uh if uh 
30 people donate 25 bucks or 3,000 people donate a buck, which gets you more money. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, it's it's there. And I, I'm happy to say that we made our second stretch goal on Wednesday. Yay. This week. And what does that entitle your, your stretchers to? to oh, receive? this is fun. You get to vote. The backers get to vote on a pencil and ink portrait of one of four characters, either Samuel, Granville, Caitlin, or Tesla. And right now, it's a dead heat between Caitlin and Tesla. That, would, that stands to reason. Cause... So you need to vote, Susan. Yes, I do. I suppose I should log on and to... Uh... You can either email me or put it in the comment section. Uh, I'll, I'll find it. I'm, okay. I'm keeping track. I just think it's funny how it's literally, it's a dead heat between Caitlin and, and Tesla right now. See, and my vote counts. It, all it absolutely counts. My dollar counts and my vote counts. But the big thing right now is stretch goal number three, which is, a, which is a big goal, but that's to print issue four. That would take a big load off your mind, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes, it would. So, For those of you who have just tuned in, we're talking to Madeline Holly-Rosing. You're listening to Krypton Radio, the event horizon, the force majeure behind the Boston Metaphysical Society. And we're back. And we're back. And we're front. So, um, after Boston, what other upcoming projects do you, do you predict in your future? Well, I'm doing a rewrite of a, a new Boston metaphysical novella called The Demons of Liberty Row. And that's the story of where Samuel and Granville meet for the first time. Mm-hmm. I want to do that story. I need to, well, obviously finish writing the last two issues of the comic. And then I have a, a middle grade fantasy that I need to rewrite it's it's finished it's gone through its beta readers so now i need to go back when i finish with the kickstarter i'll be able to go back well there's first a kickstarter then fulfillment then the rewrite (laughs) everything has its order of priority obviously Mm -hmm. uh but that's fun that's uh, well, middle grade. I, do, does that mean age level of the readers? Yes. Or does, yes. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, I wouldn't say it's middle grade. It's better than most. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh um, okay. No, it's a, yeah, it's a publishing term. It's for ages like 10 to 15. Oh, okay. And it's called uh, The Mavens of Magic. And uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> I actually don't want to give it away right now. So. Okay. Then you I'll, don't. I'll, I'll leave it at that, but my manager is waiting for it, and and is going to see if uh, she can get it to any um, literary agents, and you know we'll go from there. But uh, there's always Plan B and Plan C if that doesn't work out. The Richard Famous contract. The Richard st- Famous. No, <laughs> I just you know I don't need Call the, Richard the standard famous. rich and famous contract for. Kermit and his friends. <laughs> I don't really need the famous so much. <laughs> we'll take the rich without the Yeah, famous. the rich without Fame the famous is works. just a pain in the patootie. Oh, yeah. We have a few friends who actually kind of suffer from that, and I mean that in the kindest way. I mean, they're, they have earned their fame, and yet at the same time, the uh, distribution channels by which their stuff goes out pretty much own them. 
They can't speak in public without clearing it first. They can't go anywhere. You know, it's hard for them to go out in public, yada, yada. I think our Daft Punk robot pals have it right, you know. Nobody knows what they look like. (laughs) They could go to the store. Nobody knows. That's true. Oh, it's... They actually have been known to cosplay themselves at major conventions. <laughs> but they came in second in the contest. Like well, Charlie I don't. I, I don't think they. Co- <laughs> I don't think they compete. But they. They have been known to cosplay themselves. I think they went to Comic Con one year, <laughs> and cosplayed themselves. And everyone's and, going cool outfits, guys. Yeah, and they're going. Thanks. Yeah, and they're waving, and you know, it's like no, nobody knew it was really them. Well, Maybe Brian they switched Cranston, helmets. Brian huh? Cranston did that last year at Comic Con. He went as himself. He put a, uh, a, a Heisenberg mask on and wore it all around the Comic-Con. And then when he went to his panel, he pulled it off. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's funny. And it was him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would love to have seen that. So, yeah, so would have I. I saw it much later, I think, on YouTube or something when someone posted it. But Good old YouTube. You hardly have to go to Comic-Con panels anymore. You could just see it on YouTube and probably get a better view. Yeah, but there are advantages. When when my husband and I went last year, he's a big Bear McCreary fan, the composer. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. A Babylon, a uh, uh, not has, Babylon 5, but uh, Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica. And... He, I think he's he's doing S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, he does everything now. Anyway, he's, he's amazing, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he... I think I was doing the music for Helix and, you know, the new sci-fi show. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine I went to school with, he's the creator of Helix. Oh, great. So I was at the panel just to, you know, give good vibes and, you know, hooray for his success. And the panel before was Defiance, uh, which is also hysterical, but Bear came up to the mic to ask him a question, and they all started laughing because it's oh, that's Bear. Well, after he did his thing, he was staying in the back of the room, and my husband says, I really like to go ask Bear a question. And I said, Well, he's standing in the back of the room, just go ask him. And so he stood up and ran over, and he got to talk to Bear McCreary. And what other venue would you be able to do that in? Good point. Yeah, there are there are advantages. I mean, I unfortunately uh, uh, Comic Con is becoming so big and so unwieldy that a lot of the smaller artists are being sort of squeezed out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, it's it's uh, unless you are somebody at that level, you know, at the Bear McCreary level, uh, you're not going to get much traction there. Or not, you know. Not On the much. other hand, he can walk around the con floor and not get mobbed. He doesn't have to have handlers. You know, shifting yeah, that's him around true. backstage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. And you know, my husband's not a stalker, which is nice. He actually had like a technical question about the music to ask him. So I think Bear probably would have been thrilled to get that kind of a question. Yeah. What, what does your husband do? He is a, uh, he's a rocket scientist at JPL. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Wow. This is rocket science. <laughs> All right. I'm even more impressed now. I mean, it, it just, does it run in your family or? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, fortunately, when I have technical things I need to go over, it's just like, honey, <laughs> you know, how do I make this work? <laughs> you know, but it's good because I can, I can talk, I have someone I can talk to with about 
technical aspects either of the comic or a story or, or whatever I'm doing and get it right. And that's great. Which is nice. Which is yeah, nice. a little science in your fiction. Science. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, he's also a, um, uh, a Sloan mentor at uh, mm-hmm. UCLA uh, because mm-hmm. I won the Sloan Fellowship, which you know about the Sloan Fellowship, right? Tell us about that. Uh, it's done by the Alfred E. Sloan organization, and it gives fellowships to at the five major uh, film schools for scripts that um, highlight scientists and engineers as real people as opposed to caricatures or stereotypes and also has real science in them, in the script. And the script I wrote is called Stargazer, and it's about the, it's a, a biopic about uh, the Scottish uh, American astronomer, Mina Fleming, who arrived in the United States, in Boston in particular, uh, penniless, pregnant, and abandoned by her husband. She found a job w- as a maid in the house of the director of the Harvard Observatory. He saw that she was very detail-oriented and smart. He hired her. Long story short, she ended up discovering over 10,000 stars and developing a new stellar classification system. Oh, my. And uh, that's so a, I was one... What a great person to write a story about. Oh, yeah. It's, it, she was fascinating. She's, you, you think things stay the same they never what is the saying things never change they stay the same she was a single mom trying to raise her son you know and dealing with all the crap that single moms still deal with today you know so it was it it resonated uh with with a lot of women particularly women in the science field as how much they had to give up to be a scientist uh so it it you know, the themes of it crossed over generations into today because women in science are still dealing with the same things that Mina dealt with in, in the, you know, the 1880s. Is um, there is there any chance that, uh, that this script could eventually see production? Because it doesn't sound like uh, it doesn't sound like it's got a freshness date on it. No, it, it'll never be dated, uh, which is nice. It's been a great sample piece for me. Uh, people have really liked it. Uh, unfortunately, it's very esoteric. So producers have a hard time finding a market for it. The Science Channel. The Hallmark Masterpiece Theater. That's, that's two about. different things. I know. Oh. You know, possibly, you know, History Channel. Um, it, I mean, it's all, it's all possible, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a great, it's a great piece. Uh, it also was a semi-finalist in the Nickel Fellowship. I mean, it's, it's like the gift. It's a script that keeps on giving. <laughs> the <laughs> script that keeps on giving. giving. I like that. That's good. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it's it's a terrific story, and and I really love finding people in history that have been forgotten, like Granville and Mina, and I'm sure there's many, many more. And a lot of times they're forgotten because they're either women or they're people of color. Which is unfortunately a very sad commentary, but I'm glad you're out there digging. Oh, well, that's part of the fun of being a writer is the research part. And, 
discovering new people and new things and being able to write about them and, and what they've done. Otherwise, um, uh, you know, we still need the Kickstarter still going on for 20 more days. Mm -hmm. It ends on February 21st. Wouldn't so, it be cool if we could get the entire six book run, you know, paid for? Uh, that would be awesome, but we pretty much figured we were going to be doing a couple more Kickstarters, mm -hmm. and we, our hope was, and we're almost there here to do this one was three and four, mm -hmm. we'll do another one for five and six, and then later on. Yeah, I was I was going to say that uh, this one's done so well that you might have to do only two Kickstarters instead of three. Uh. To finish that, it up uh that would be great um but if that doesn't work out we we know that it may not mm -hmm. uh the third one would be to do the trade where we would put all six issues together have a ton of bonus material so i mean we'd be talking about a big book here mm -hmm. because with just the six issues in one book that's 132 pages yes yes it is <laughs> that's a pretty <laughs> that's, that's a, a that's pretty a, hefty you know, trade that a big bowl of popcorn and some some hot chocolate and I'm I'm in for the night. And and then <laughs> you know the, the extras could include anything from you know short uh, new new and old short stories, mm -hmm. novellas, uh, additional artwork. Um, I do sell special edition digital copies of the chapters on like uh, drive-through comics and e-manga mm -hmm. and a few other places. Ooh, and those are huge because those are like 30, uh, have at least 30 plus extra bonus pages on top of the chapter. Mm -hmm. And what I've done with those is I'll take some of the artwork that Emmy has done and I'll, I'll put little, you know, captions discussing what's you know almost like little blogs of uh, telling people like you know what changed here what happened here the story behind this um i'll actually kind of have fun with people and say like okay we did xyz here see how it changed on the finished page mm -hmm. uh, you know i just talk about the process how it it's made stuff me. yeah and and what's happened so and i think and it would fascinate a lot of other people too yeah. and then there's usually you know short uh, uh, at least one short story that's also part of it as well um something strikes me about the number of pages and that is that it happens to be with uh, right in the ballpark of uh, being a motion picture script in the same number of pages hmm i wonder why <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. We've dug up a we've dug up a truffle here. So. Well, you know, it's training. Well, you know, it was actually developed. You know, it was actually developed as a TV series, right? Uh, so a so, half hour of TV would be no. Well, this is it'd be a full hour. This this was designed to be an hour long, um, you know, supernatural procedural. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. And uh, the what the six issue miniseries that you see now is an adaptation of my original pilot. Uh -huh. uh, tell us what that term means—a a procedural in, in this context. A procedural is every you could watch an episode, and in this case, 
in, in Boston Metaphysical, our team has a case they have to solve. So you ride along for the case and at the end of the episode or the issue, that case is solved, but there's an overarching storyline that is not finished until the end of the six issue miniseries or the end of the season or however you want to seasons, however you want to term it. Mm -hmm. uh, I see. And in the case of the comic, you will see that in every issue, they have a case. And so as a reader, you get to go through the case and the case is solved. So you get a sense of satisfaction as a reader, but you know there's this big bad called the shifter that that storyline is not going to be resolved until issue six. But it's always in the background. It's always pushing the characters. It's always there somewhere. I love, I'm really intrigued by the fact that Caitlin has a very different experience with, uh, with the supernatural than, uh, than, than, Joseph, does. than Joseph does. Yeah. Samuel. Samuel, sorry. Yeah, Samuel does. And, and she's, she has friends who are, who have passed on. Correct. And, uh, he only knows the supernatural as enemies, destructive forces. It's the, the only thing he knows about them. Correct. Is he going to uh, develop some insights because of Caitlin? Uh, or is that a spoiler? Well, that's kind of a spoiler, yeah. Okay, all right. We won't go there. <laughs> yeah. We, we know nothing. We say nothing. <laughs> yeah, okay. it, it, is, it is funny. Is, is when I'll be at Comic-Cons, people will start peppering me with questions. And I'll go like, I can't tell you that yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, buy, buy issue number five. <laughs> yeah, you'll so find that out you have to wait <laughs> have to wait yes i know how it's going to end really i do <laughs> <laughs> and it's not exactly what you expect good madeline holly rosing we're so glad that you were able to stop by again and visit us on the event horizon on krypton radio well uh, thank you very much for having me it, it was quite a delight and we hope to have you back again. We'd love to hear how all of this wraps up and what's next for Boston Metaphysical and your future projects. Thank you. I will keep you guys apprised of how things work out. Excellent. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. You have just heard episode 48 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for February 8th, 2014. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer, Susan Fox. Our guest this week has been Madeline Holly Rosing, the author and creator of the successful steampunk supernatural webcomic, Boston Metaphysical Society. This episode will air again on Sunday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-Minus One. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi 
for your Wi-Fi.